is actually just going to go on the internet and look up a definition of what conversation means. But then I thought, why not just ask Siri? Just And so this is what I was told, and I actually I think this is a good definition of a conversation. The informal exchange of ideas by spoken words. The informal, because obviously it's not a speech, it's not a debate, so it's informal. Here's another key that you guys kind of hit on. There's an exchange of something. An exchange means that both parties have something to offer. An exchange does not take place if I only dump on you and get nothing in return. An exchange, really, if you think about it, means that you have something that I want and I have something that you want. That's really when an exchange actually takes place, right? So it's an informal exchange, and here's what we're exchanging. We're exchanging ideas. Now, this is where it gets tricky because we can all think of exchanging physical things. That's a little easier, right? If I, you have a pencil and I have a pen and we want to swap those things, it's pretty simple eye-hand coordination to exchange that, right? It becomes a little more difficult than what we're trying to exchange is ideas because that means there's something floating around up here and the only way I can hand that to you is how? Through my mouth, which we could all testify to the ways in which our mouth has failed us many, many, many times, especially depending on the idea that we're talking about, the level of importance of that idea. Well, the reason that I focus in on this word conversation is because um, uh, the front porch, which is defined this way, and I'll tell you this, you can go to to their, their website and this is what you'll find, a conversation about biblical faithfulness in the African American church and beyond. So that was, I don't even want to call it an organization because it's not really an organization, it actually is just a conversation, that's what it is. Uh, so there's a website and there's some guys who get together on a regular basis and they converse about some of these things, but it's not really an organization. They don't have a set goal. This is what we want to accomplish. Really what they want to do is they want to have a conversation that's biblically faithful. And then, of course, there's a really interesting notion in there, especially since I'm the one standing up here, which leads me to my disclaimers, in the African-American church and beyond. So I, don't, I hate to inform all of you. This would probably be a shock. I am white. And so it is a little weird for me to be standing up here talking to you about this conversation that took place uh, at the Just Gospel Conference. Um, I don't want to be up here, and I could have come up with a whole list of disclaimers in doing this, and I didn't want to do that. Uh, But I do want to say this. I don't want in any way presume to speak for all people in regards to justice and all classifications. Okay, There were over 20 sessions in a three-day period of time that covered everything from abortion to adoption to women to mostly um, race issues and cultural issues. Um, So for me to stand up here and presume to speak for all of those people in all of those categories would be really foolish. It would honestly be foolish for me to stand up here thinking I represent every white, bald guy, because there are a few others in here, who probably don't want me to represent them. (laughs) So... So I do want to I do want to say that um, what's the goal though? Uh, the goal is not for me to give you a sermon, and is not for me to try and tell you everything that was communicated in that. The desire is to move along a conversation, and the reason that we're taking time to do this is not just so we could talk about it, but like I said, attended a conference 
three-day conference uh, that was right here in Atlanta. Um, and the reason that I attended the conference and the reason that we're doing this tonight is because one of our Vision 2020 goals, objectives, is multicultural diversity. And for this next year, you probably all have this memorized, hate to bore you, but for this next year, here's one of the goals and see if this connects with conversation. Develop a peacemaking culture where matters of race and culture can be discussed freely in love. Now, to me, I kind of take that word discuss to be synonymous with a conversation, to be a synonym, right, to a conversation. That's essentially what we've said as a church we want to do. We want to be a place where conversations about culture and race can take place freely and lovingly. That's where we want to be. So like I said, the, the title of this conference was Just Gospel. It's supposed to be a play on words, begging the question, do we just preach the gospel or do we preach a just gospel or is that even a fair dichotomy to set up? So when you have a thing like that, the first thing you have to ask is the question of justice. What is justice? Right? And depending on who you ask, you could get a lot of different answers to that question. But I think for us, and as, as we saw before, the idea, the goal is to be biblically faithful in the question of justice. So the moment that any biblically faithful person is asked the question of justice, who is the first person their mind should go to? This is a, this is a Sunday school answer. God, there you go. Jesus, God, we got, it. We, got it. we got it. We should go to the Lord. Why? Because over and over in Scripture we see this. Here's just one example. It's imagery that I love. Psalm uh, 89 verse 14 the psalmist says this righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne Isn't that a great image not only that but we see for instance in psalm 72 where which is uh, a psalm of 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 solomon he starts out and he says give the king your justice O god and your righteousness to the royal son so here's solomon and what what, what justice does he want we want God's justice because that's the only just justice that there is. That's what he's asking for. I found it interesting. One um, person made this, this, this comment. I had not seen this before. That back in 1 Kings chapter 3, after, after Solomon gets wisdom from the Lord, and there's that whole case between the two prostitutes and one of the children dies, and he is able to figure that case out. That chapter concludes in verse 28. People are astounded at his wisdom, but they say that they, they make the special note. They saw the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon, verse 28, that he might do justice. Isn't that interesting? A connection between the giving of God's wisdom so that justice might be done. So we know that God is just. The question then becomes, what about you and me? What does justice look like for us? And here was one of the definitions that was given at the conference, and I liked it, and I'm still wrestling with it, but here, here it is. I'm just going to give it to you. And they, they said this, for us, justice is this, the image bearers of God reflecting the communicable attributes of God to others. The image bearers of God reflecting the communicable attributes of God to others. So what I like about that definition is, one, it means I don't get to determine what justice is. Justice is a set thing and it comes from the Lord. It's got to be me reflecting his attributes, not what I choose or what I feel. But here's the other thing that it forces me to do. It says that you can't do justice in a corner by yourself. Me, myself, and I, we're just to one another. 
and we're very just people, just alone, by ourselves. No, it forces the notion that justice is something, as Scripture talks about, that is done. And it's done in relationship with other people. Justice, justice um, uh, Harold Milton, who is uh, one of the Supreme Court justices here in, in Georgia, and after hearing him talk, uh, I am thankful that he is one of our Supreme Court justices. He said this from a legal standpoint. He gave this simple definition to justice. He said that it's the right response to what, to what has gone wrong. It's the right response to what has gone wrong. And he said this, he said, you know, basically by the time the question of justice comes to me, it doesn't matter how I feel or what I think, that's out of my hands. My responsibility is to bring the law to bear on that situation as clearly and as effectively as I possibly can. That's his responsibility. But he made this really important note, and I think as something I wanted to take time to stress, as he said, for justice to be done, though, you need relationship and knowledge. In order to do justice, you need relationship and knowledge. Now, when you think about that, it makes sense because our God enacts perfect justice. In fact, you and I should be longing for the day when Christ returns. And one of the things we long for is that he will rule on his throne and he will establish perfect justice. Now, part of the reason he'll be able to do that is because he won't need forensic investigators. He won't need to question anyone because he already knows all things about every single person. And so he will be able to enact the right, he'll be able to enact the perfect law, which is himself, on people perfectly because he knows all things. If you're a parent or if you've been a child, so that covers all of us, you have been in a situation where... Your parent walks into the room, they assume they know the situation that's taking place, they don't, and they might enact something that seems just, it's according to the law, but it doesn't fit the situation because they don't understand what's going on. Does that make sense? I mean, I want you to imagine a judge who knows the law so well, I mean, he knows that law, and he knows it so well, that the moment he walks into the courtroom, he doesn't listen to anybody. He just looks at people and says, here it is, it's the law. Is that justice? Would anyone want to appear before that judge? <laughs> you see, justice requires that we know the law, but it also requires that we have a relationship and a knowledge of the people to whom we want to do justice. Does that make sense? I know that seems maybe kind of simple, but when I begin to think about what I'm called to do in doing justice in my community and with the people around me, I have to ask myself, how much do I know who they are or how much do I assume because I know what is right that I can just lay it out there and tell them how it's supposed to be without taking the time to build relationships and understand who they are? I'll give you one example of this that floored me because one of the areas of justice that we're very comfortable with, more so than others, is the area of abortion, right? We're not comfortable with it like we agree with it, but comfortable in the sense that we would all agree that abortion is wrong. 
And so we say abortion is wrong. I agree with that. It's, and, and so we know that that's right. And many times what we, what we do, someone like me, I've never, I've never, I've never, uh, been in a relationship where there was the issue of abortion or been around people that I, that I know of were struggling with whether or not they should have abortion or people that were broken over an abortion issue. And so it would be like me sitting and saying, this says, God's word says that abortion is wrong. I know that it's wrong. We all agree on that. So I am here going to establish how to do justice towards women who are struggling with abortion without talking to any of them. And then I'm going to run out there and tell them how to do it. What would be a better way to establish justice? A better way would be to understand the word of God, not compromise on that whatsoever, but then to engage in relationship and to gain knowledge and to sit down and talk with women who maybe were considering having an abortion, women who've had an abortion. And here is the thing, and as this guy who was, who was speaking to this abortion issue shared, one issue that he brought up, well, I'll give you two, and then we'll move on. He, two issues that he brought up. He said, one, we've, we've gotten into this debate, and he only got to this point by engaging in relationship and gaining knowledge from people, where we've come down to a decision, a false decision, between are you for women, are you for babies? That's kind of our, that's kind of the, the, the dialogue right now, if you want to call it a dialogue. And his quote, he actually got asked that one time by a, by a reporter, and he said, that's like asking me if I'm for breathing in or breathing out. Are you for women? Yes. Are you for babies? Yes. And not only that, but here's one of the things that he threw out there that just that only came from engaging and understanding people is he said, I'm also for the biological father of that child. Because here's the thing is he found as he worked with these women, hands down in all of the interactions they've had, the most influential person in the life of that mother towards either having or not having an abortion is the biological father. And so to do justice wasn't just to say abortion is wrong and go out there and scream from the mountaintops abortion is wrong. It was to engage with those women to say, I don't just want you to not have an abortion. I'm not just for life. This is what he would say. I'm not just for life. I'm for abundant life. I want to see that baby living an abundant life. I want to see that mother living an abundant life. And I want to see that young man who was engaged in that picture. I want to see him living an abundant life. So that in a few months... You haven't just stopped an abortion and then have another young lady who's pregnant again and she's coming back. Or you have that guy coming back with another young lady that he's gotten pregnant along the way. But that takes relationship. Nothing's changed. No one anywhere is saying, well, maybe abortion isn't wrong. Maybe they're ex No, no one's saying that. But rather, it's taking and engaging in the knowledge of the situation. And so as you engage in that and getting to know people, it helps you to understand the best way you can help them. So with that thought in mind, just two things that I've been challenged with. As we engage in these conversations, the desire to know people, one, I need to be careful for myself as I use the third person plural. The they's. If I find myself in conversation using the they's often, and I can't tell you quickly who the they's are, I probably need to stop using they. Not only that, but if the they is a group of people who I can sum up by one character trait, and I'm therefore speaking to an entire group of people based on one character trait, I need to be really careful. 
I know, and I can speak to this at least, that while I was living in Senegal, I did not like being summarized in the sum total of me being that I was a white man. And that that clumped me in with Germans, French, Swiss, I mean, you name it, even Canadians. Can you imagine that? That you were clumped in with all those people and you were just a they. None of us like being a they. Now, there are moments where it fits, and I'm not saying, obviously, we need to, it can come down to semantics, but you get what I'm saying. Be careful with that. Here's the other thing I found to really be careful with is the, the bomb called statistics. Statistics can be used, and they can be useful, but they can also be bombs that we lodge from our entrenched position over into another person's entrenched position. How loved do you feel when somebody quotes a statistic to you? How much does it further the conversation if I quote a statistic to you about a certain situation? Again, it's not to say that they don't have their place, but when I'm thinking about engaging someone, if I'm wanting to know them, I want to understand so that I can figure out the best way to apply the truth of God's word and do justice for that person, I need to be really careful. And I think here is a place where our media does us a great disservice. It doesn't matter what channel you're watching. It's so easy to find the statistics that argue for your perspective. And I don't think at times we stop and ask, what are we intending when we quote that statistic? If I say this about that group, what what is it that I'm really, what's behind that? What do I mean by that? And we can talk more about that, but I don't want to get totally sidetracked into those things. So if we want to engage people so that we can do justice, we want to build relationships, here's a tension that we have to live in. And Dr. Carl Ellison Jr., who works some with the Anne Campaign, which is based right here out of Atlanta. Uh, it's an interesting website. You can check that out, the Anne Campaign um, here. He has this even does has this diagram, but I just found this really helpful. He said, look, there are two biblical truths that hold us in tension when we work with people. And one, and this came up at the conference a lot, is what we call the, what's called the Imago Dei. It's the fact, Genesis 1:27, we are all made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. So that means it does not matter how much I don't like you, how much I disagree with you, you as a human being have dignity because you're made in the image of God. I can never be biblical and just and look past that. I don't have the right to stand on the Word of God and say to a group of people or an individual that because of who you are, whether it's the color of your skin or the way that you vote or an act that you've committed in your life, I have the right to marginalize you. Because all people are made in the image of God. Trip Lee, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he's a a, a Christian rap artist, a hip-hop artist. And he said, there's no, there's no group of people or person that we can deem unlovable. So there's that truth. Now if we err all the way over to that side, what happens though is we just all get together and we hug one another and we, well not, we don't hug, not here, I'm just joking. We, we, we all get together and we hold hands together. And we, 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 we try and, I don't know, act like we're together. 
And that doesn't really accomplish anything because the other truth that Scripture teaches us that's very clear, still not leaving Genesis yet, is that we are all totally contaminated by sin. So we have this, we have kind of this tension here, right? If I swing too far to the side where I say, we're all made in the image of God, we're all beautiful people, we all just need to hold hands and get along, that doesn't work. However, if I swing all the way to the other side and begin marginalizing people because I say we're sinful, contaminated people, we live in a contaminated culture, and even begin to buy into the fact that there's certain segments of the culture that are somehow more contaminated, somehow they're more perverse, they're, they're more uh, wicked than another part of the culture, those people that live, maybe if I say those people that live in a certain area or a certain country, Scripture doesn't allow me to do that. It brings me back to this tension of the two. One quote that was thrown out, um, Dr. Christina Edmondson, by one of the panel, this lady on the panel probably caused me to <clears throat> struggle a little more than others, but... She, she gave this quote, and I thought it was good. Disagreement that leads to despising is the thing that causes us to be indifferent to each other's death. Disagreement that leads to despisement is the thing that causes us to be indifferent to each other's death. What is that to say? It's to say that if I get to the place where I'm disagreeing with people so much so that when they die, I'm indifferent to that, then something's wrong. Something's wrong. I might not agree with the narrative that comes along, but I don't have the ability just to be indifferent and to say it doesn't matter. So I guess we could look at this and we could just say, well, this is the role of our justice system, right? We live in America and this is the role of our justice system and this was something else that... Um, that uh, was said there, the justice system is just one small part of establishing justice and doing justice. Folks, we have seen over the past several months, we have seen the turmoil that's come, whether it's through the shootings that have taken place and the division that's, that's there, so that, you, so that there's immediate tension when you make a, a statement, whether it be Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, and the immediate way that divides. We've seen it happen as well with an election, and we've seen a division that's taken place. To me, it doesn't, I don't see how we could sit back and say, well, we'll just let our justice system sort that out. We'll just let our police forces sort that out. Now, do they have a role to play? Absolutely, they have a role to play. And we thank God for them, and Scripture tells us that. We're thankful that they're in place, but I, justice does not start with the justice system. Justice does not start with the police officer that patrols my neighborhood. Justice starts in my home. For me, justice starts in the way that my children see me interact with my wife and not marginalize her or look down on her because she's a woman. Justice starts with the way I treat my children and the way I instruct them. Justice starts with the fact that they see that the people that I invite into my home don't just all look like me and think like me and agree with everything that I do and am. 
Justice starts as I move out into my community. Those are the places that justice starts. I'm absolutely convinced that if our answer is that we're going to wait for the just president that will establish justice for us, or we're waiting for the all-just police department to establish justice for us, or an organization that is going to come in that we'll all agree with and say, yes, they're the cause of justice, then we're going to be sorely disappointed. Justice starts with us. And while the church cannot be our total uh, reform for the justice system, it does have a huge role to play. We are called to be image bearers of God to those around us. Because the image of God cannot be marginalized, we can't behave with indifference towards the people around us. No matter who God puts around us, we can't behave with indifference towards them. We can't say that they don't matter because of the way that they choose to vote. It means that the neighbor down the street who put a Hillary Clinton sign in their front yard... I can't say, well, I'm skipping that house when I go to greet my neighbors. Or the one that maybe there's a a, a linguistic difficulty, a language difficulty when you go to engage them, that they don't matter, I'm going to bypass them. What's the greatest commandments in Scripture? Yeah, we know that, right? It starts all the way back in the Old Testament it's in Leviticus, repeat again, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Then when Jesus was, was, was tested in these things, and, and, and this was his response as well, to love the Lord your God. And that what flows from that is that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. So the question is, how do I want to be loved? To me, that's a question that we should be asking because we have the truth of God's word. I'm not shocked if the world doesn't ask that question. I'm not shocked if the world doesn't recognize the inherent dignity that all people have because for years now we've been teaching everybody that they evolved from monkeys. Does that... But I know this is God's word. I know that people were made in the image of God and I know that I am called to love the way that I want to be loved. So my question as I go out into my community and I interact with people should be, one of the questions at least should be, how do I want to be loved? Are there people around me that aren't being loved like that? And then should that impact me? Should that matter to me? I think it certainly should matter to me inside the church. It should certainly matter to me, and I don't think should be something that I ignore, if there are a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who come together, as was the case for this Just Gospel Conference, to speak about and to wrestle with the issues of race inside the church. Now, if you were hoping for me to solve that debate for you tonight, you're going to be disappointed. Again, but what I don't think we can do is just say it doesn't matter or say what difference does it make or take a stance that says it hasn't arrived here yet, so we're okay. I think that we need to be engaged because we're called to love. 
That was one of the big questions that continually came up. Should the church be involved in social justice movements? I bet you if I asked that question right now, there'd be a lot of different responses to it. But here was one of the first things that was asked, and I think very wisely, it was to define involvement and define what you mean by social justice. Those are some key questions that need to be determined when you uh, think about an answer like that. But here were two thoughts that were given that I thought were really important. One, we should be involved in the sense that we should be involved missionally. I really think that we're missing a huge opportunity to speak into the lives of people. I mean, we ask this question, I ask this question, where's community taking place, right? I mean, people don't walk around their neighborhoods like they used to, and we bemoan that fact. Oh, in the good old days, we sat on our front porches and we all had community and we did community. Folks, look at the news. Look where people are rallying. People will rally around social justice issues. And here's the incredible thing. They rally around the issue of justice. I started back into uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And what's one of his first things that he starts out with in talking about and as we engage people in this question of does God exist? The question of moral right and wrong. Here we have a culture that we've said is so moved beyond God, and, 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 and perhaps in many ways they have, but they're rallying around the question of justice. Do I not have an opportunity then to walk into those places, whether it be with my neighbors or whether it be to intentionally engage in, in one of those, those groups or an interact with them and say, hey, I, I just, help me understand, how do you define justice? How do you know what right and wrong is? Not to pick a fight and belittle them or win an argument, but it's an incredible opportunity for evangelism. We have a whole culture that's stirring up this question of justice, and it's a great opportunity to walk in and to say, here's a way we can just steer this conversation right towards the gospel. So we engage missionally where people are connecting and they're already asking questions to which, honestly, as we know, Scripture alone has the final answers to this. Where are we going to send people for justice if if we don't send them to the gospel? Where are we going to send them? What are we going to tell them? To me, it's not a question of going away from the gospel to preaching something else. It's a matter of going to people where they're at and bringing the gospel so they can understand what justice really is. So the first is missionally and the second is critically. The second is critically. That does not mean to criticize. That's not what I'm thinking. When they mentioned that point, I saw the guys on uh, The Muppet Show. You remember those two guys that sat up like in the balcony and criticized everybody? And I was like, hey, I can do that. I'm pretty good at that. That's not the idea. It's to mean, it's, it's to say this, and we, this phrase comes up, but it's so important. We have to do justice justly. This is not one of those situations where you can say the end justifies the means. It doesn't work that way. We have to do justice justly, and our greatest example of justice being done justly is again God, who desired to save us, but being a God of justice, he had to do justice justly, and in order to do justice justly, it meant that he made his son the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
so that he could do justice justly. Right? That's what Romans says. Romans 3, 26. That he would prove himself to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. So we want to do justice and we want to make sure that we're doing it justly. We can't just run out with big hearts and um, leave the gospel behind. Of course, we can't do that. We can't engage in activities that would be unlawful. We can't engage in immoral activities and say, but this is for the cause of justice. We have to do justice justly, but I think we see in the gospel itself the extreme measure that God went to to do that. All right. Well, time is moving by. I made these. I, my, my, my notes are handwritten because I changed them so many times throughout the course of this, this whole thing. There is a lot more that I could say. Let me just say this. You and I sit here tonight very privileged people. And I know that the word privileged is a little, it, it's got a little tinge to it right now. Because we hear phrases like white privilege and those types of things and it, eh, we kind of, uh, a little bit, okay? But the truth of the matter is, is that all of us, to one degree or another, sit in here very privileged people. By that I mean we are abundantly blessed. No one in their right mind should be sitting in this room thinking, I got here on my own good merit, I live at the income level that I live at. I have the wife, husband, kids. I have everything that I deserve. If you look at the totality of my life, I am the sum total of my choices and my hard labor. And so therefore, there's no privilege here. It is just all what I deserve. I don't think any of us would say that. We are all extremely privileged. We preach a gospel that says that God, and I'm going to say it this way and then I'm going, to, I'm going to clarify it. We have a Savior who did not cling to His privilege but relinquished His, relinquished his privilege, leveraged His privilege so that He could accomplish for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, I asked Justin before I used that statement because I still eh, I don't like using the word privilege because it was even stronger than that. You see, Jesus did have all that he deserved. That's why it doesn't say privileged in Philippians chapter 2. It says the right. You and I can't say right. I can't say that I am who I am today standing before you because it is my right. I deserve everything I've gotten. Jesus in heaven was, was able to say that all the glory and honor that he had was his right. It was rightfully his. And yet he leveraged all of those rights, Romans chapter 8, to do for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. He fulfilled perfectly the law because you and I couldn't fulfill perfectly the law. He took his rights and leveraged them so that you and I could have accomplished for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, if that's the gospel that we preach, then I don't know how I can sit with privilege and remain indifferent to people around me. 
but rather my posture should be one of seeking every way possible to leverage the privileges that I have so that I can help accomplish for other people what might not be possible otherwise. Now, I know here's one of the objections, but you don't, because it comes from my heart. Okay, I'm not accusing anyone in here. This, this comes out of, out of me. Yeah, but you don't know that guy. Huh. You see, he made a bunch of really bad choices. He's still making a ton of bad choices. He deserves what he's getting. Yeah, I'll go to that guy as soon as that guy acts more like me. As soon as he wises up and starts behaving like me, then I'll go to that guy. You know what? I'm glad that's not what Jesus said. I'm glad Jesus didn't say, you know what? I'll go to those people and I will lay down my rights and do for them what they can't do for themselves as soon as they start acting like me. I'll go to them as soon as they start listening to the music I listen to. I'll go to them when they stop putting tattoos on themselves. I'll go to them when they pull their pants up. I'll go to them when they start behaving more like I want them to behave, voting the way that I want them to vote, being the type of neighbors that I want them to be. Then I'll go to them. But that's not what the gospel says. That's not what Christ did. And so we move out into our communities because we believe that God is a God of justice. And He leveraged his rights so that he could accomplish for us what we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. So when we talk about the issue of justice, it is not to be cute. It's not to be novel. Because the truth of the matter is, is that people have been clamoring for justice ever since the fall. We could trace this all the way back to the Old Testament. Right? Because here we had Solomon who was given the wisdom of God and he's, he's praying in Psalm 72, God, give me your justice that I might be a just king. And by the end of Solomon's life, we are all going, wow, we need a way better king. So even in and among God's covenant people, Israel, there was a plea and a desire for justice, and that continues and will continue all the way through until Christ returns. In the meantime, while we're in that, what has already taken place, and we're awaiting what Christ will accomplish when he returns, he calls you and us to live with that kingdom character. Well, I hopefully have maybe kicked over some stones, maybe have agitated a few things, that's part of the desire because the only way to continue and engage in a conversation is if we're willing to admit to the fact that maybe there are some things that I don't know yet and maybe there are some things that somebody else knows and we can begin in a conversation to exchange some ideas through spoken words in the love of Christ. Well, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the fact that these issues that we wrestle with, whether it be um, racial issues here in the United States, whether it be issues of adoption, abortion, whether it be um, the, the, the issues of, of, of feminism and, and, and those things, that are called, all of these issues, they, they at times seem so complex to us. Um, and we, we, I confess, at least for myself, that there are times I kind of go, I don't even know if this is solvable. None of these issues are complex to you. You are not baffled or confused by any of them. They are a constant reminder 
that no matter how smart we think that we are, we desperately need a better king. And I don't, we don't just need that king for other people, we need that king for our own hearts and our own lives. So Lord, help us to be people who plead with you for your justice and that it would rule and reign in our lives. And then make us a people, Lord, who would move out into our families and into our communities. And even here in our own church family, that we would be those who seek to do justice justly. Help us as we engage in these conversations. Keep us humble, Lord, willing to listen, to really exchange ideas. Lord, our desire in the midst of this is that we would be a light in this community that we would be an example of the gospel lived out as well as proclaimed to all who come through these doors. And Lord, we really also want people to know that we want them in this place. We're not asking for them to clean themselves up and become morally good people before they come. We want them to come. We want to share the gospel that has given us hope and radically changed our lives. So help us as we seek to do these things, Lord. Keep us dependent upon you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.